Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. You're lucky you tuned in today for Spirit in Action because my guest is the consummate journalist and author Larry Tai. I've had him on previously with his books about Satchel Paige and Bobby Kennedy, and he's enthralled me with his reporting and his ability to convey historic truths and lessons that could and should change the way we make decisions today. Larry's new book is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, being released just this coming week, and it maps out the rise and fall of a dangerous, dangerous person in the highest ranks of the U.S. government, so you know it applies to today. There's such rich insights whenever talking to Larry Ty that you will simply have to go to the NordenSpiritRadio.org website to hear the bonus excerpts that we couldn't fit into this broadcast, like about Larry's book about Superman as a Jewish hero, the extra one-time-only sources that Larry had for this book, and to talk about Joe McCarthy's good attributes. Look at the excerpts on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, but right now we welcome Larry Ty via Zoom. Larry, what a delight to have you back for the third time now for Spirit in Action. So I'm very glad to be back with you today. We're here today to talk about Demagogue, the life and long shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. For those of us who are not as erudite as you are, Larry, define the word demagogue. Demagogue is a wonderful Greek word that, in a positive sense, it suggests a leader who springs from the people, but it's also a leader who is a populist and who really is a bully. That is the meaning that demagogue has come to take in American history appropriately, and it is, I think, in the context that I use it in this book and that the Greeks ended up giving us, it is a leader who appeals to some of the worst instincts in people and ends up becoming the consummate bully. Well, I can't imagine anyone today who might deserve that name, or maybe I can, and we'll get into that very shortly. In all likelihood, I'm going to entitle this on my website as Lessons We Should Have Learned. Because I think that with what happened with Joe McCarthy and the damage that he wrought upon this nation and to some degree the world, it was so very crucial that we learn from the mistakes we made then. And we haven't, considering our current president. So what draws you to write about this miscreant, and I'm trying to be choose a nice word, I think, when I talk about Joe McCarthy, what leads you to write this book? I mean, you say it actually at the very end. You give the reasons why this book and why now. Yes. So I was actually signed up just before the 2016 election to write a very different book. A few days before the election, I had signed up with a great publisher to write about Barack Obama. And I was inspired about doing that. I was inspired by Barack Obama's presidency. And then the day after the election, I realized we will not know the true legacy of Barack Obama and not be able to tell the story accurately until the era of Trump is over and until we really see what is lasting of the Obama eight years. 
It also seemed the day after the election that a more appropriate book in terms of the times that we were in was one that the official historian of the U.S. Senate had been encouraging me to write for years, and that was the biography of Joe McCarthy. The Senate historian had been the one who had taken all of McCarthy's closed-door hearing transcripts, and two-thirds of the hearings, the very famous hearings that McCarthy held, were behind closed doors and nobody knew what went on there. Those transcripts were being released finally after half a century, This historian of the Senate was the one who was annotating them and overseeing their release. And he said these hearing transcripts, 9,000 pages of them, was McCarthy unhinged. It was him behind closed doors in a form that we had never seen him in when he thought nobody was looking and could truly get away with anything. And it was an illuminating way of seeing who the real Joe McCarthy was. So the combination of my timing being off for Barack Obama and my timing being on in terms of what was going on in our world and in terms of these new papers for Joe McCarthy made that seem like the book to write, and that's what I did. I also am curious about the big overview. In doing Norton Spirit Radio programs and doing this show, Spirit in Action, my objective is to lift up people who are doing world healing, who are trying to make this place a better world for us to live in. What's your overall objective of your journalism besides to get rich by spending incredible long hours researching things? My objective is to try to do, ideally, and it's immodest of me to say it, but to try to do the kinds of things that your show is trying to do, to try to enlighten people from stories that are either good news, inspiring stories, which is what Bobby Kennedy's was, or are darker stories, which is what Joe McCarthy's was. But it is partly through understanding the lessons of darkness and understanding our susceptibility to demagoguery that we can protect ourselves against it and that we can end up with an inspired story. And Joe McCarthy, while it is the darkest of stories, It's also, to me, a good news story. And the good news is that if you give demagogues enough rope, American history shows they will eventually hang themselves. I think that McCarthy's story is not just the story of the rise of a demagogue. It's the story of an even faster fall of Joe McCarthy when the American people saw who this guy really was and recognized their own better lives. Well, let's talk a little bit about the history of Joe McCarthy. So he's from the eastern side of Wisconsin. I live on the western side, and I used to live in Milwaukee, the southeastern corner of the state. And he rises as a chicken farmer. He becomes a circuit judge. How did he make it from being a chicken farmer and circuit judge to this national post? I mean, I guess Wisconsin back in those days was thoroughly Republican when Republicans stood for some principles. He made it with incredible chutzpah and with huge talent and with lots of deception. And I want to tell you a little bit about each of those things to understand how a guy could go from being a chicken farmer to a circuit judge and an even bigger jump, I think, from a circuit judge to dethroning one of the most progressive and powerful senators in the history of Wisconsin or the nation, who was young Bob LaFollette. What McCarthy did was, A, he had enormous ambition, 
and he understood that La Follette had spent so much time in Washington fighting for causes believed in. He and his father were fathers of the progressive movement in America, but he spent so much time in Washington that he was out of touch with Wisconsin generally maybe a bit, but more with the Wisconsin Republican Party, that he had had to decide as the progressive party was folding whether he was going to go back to Republican roots or be a Democrat. He decided, La Follette, to be a Republican. McCarthy decided that he was vulnerable in the primary. He took him on. He understood that out-of-touch element. He understood that the conservative forces in the Republican Party, and in Wisconsin they called them stalwarts, who were the right-wing side of the Republican Party, the stalwarts were looking for a champion. And while he was an unlikely champion, McCarthy had started life as a Democrat and a flaming New Dealer. But he was more than anything an opportunist and was understood that in that part of Wisconsin at that moment, being a Democrat was being a loser. And he didn't want to be a loser. He quietly switched from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. He not so quietly made himself out to be the champion for the stalwart or conservative Republicans. He challenged La Follette as being out of touch and ended up, through a combination, as I say, having incredible drive and charm, but also being willing to misrepresent things like La Follette's record ended up challenging him successfully, shocking him and I think the entire state of Wisconsin by winning the primary, going on in easier fashion to beat a Democratic candidate who had never imagined that he'd be facing McCarthy instead of La Follette, and ending up in the U.S. Senate having tapped into, and you know Wisconsin much better than me, but having tapped into the other side of Wisconsin politics. that To me, Wisconsin has historically been a hotbed of progressive people and progressive Democrats or progressive party themselves and having very conservative roots. So it's the same thing you see today. It's a closely divided and polarized state. McCarthy tapped into the populist and agrarian, more conservative side of Wisconsin in a way that was quite extraordinary, managed to end up in the U.S. Senate, not quite sure what he was going to do when he got there, not quite sure why he wanted to be there other than that he wanted power, and ended up a young U.S. senator in the beginning of 1947. You do such a wonderful job, Larry, in laying out the history and demagogue, including the fact that he did any number of completely illegal things. I mean, when running to become the U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, he was actually in the military at the time. They're not supposed to be campaigning. He's a circuit judge on leave to be in the military during World War II. All of these things are completely illegal, or maybe they're just somewhere shy of being illegal. Maybe they're just suggested against. Could you lay out the case? I mean, isn't there enough evidence there to say that he illegally ran for office at that point? So there was lots of evidence that he did it, a combination of unethically and illegally. When he first made a bid for U.S. Senate, an earlier bid that he lost, he was campaigning in a way that soldiers were explicitly prohibited from campaigning. He actually had signs up on his barracks in the South Pacific, McCarthy for Senator, and people thought it was a joke. And it was a joke unless you looked at the directives that we look at in the book from his commanders in the um, Marines and in the military generally saying, this is something that active duty soldiers aren't supposed to be doing. 
in terms of being a circuit judge and running for office for all kinds of reasons that your listeners can imagine, the idea of an active judge who is hearing cases running for a public office has all kinds of potential conflicts inherent in it, but none of that bothered McCarthy. And he exploited gray areas. He got away with doing things that the judiciary said were what he was doing, but Joe McCarthy was always one from his earliest days of skirting any notions of ethics or legality to do what he wanted to do in a gung-ho enough barreling forward way that he ended up getting away with it. And there was a question of whether he would be allowed to take his Senate. ended up the way he always did until the end, getting away with amazing things. It boggles my mind, but then my mind has been so boggled for the last four years dealing with the case of Donald Trump. I mean, I'm specifically naming a person who I think, from all the evidence I've seen, has been doing completely illegal things, things that are constitutionally prohibited as well as legally, as well as by precedent. So there's any number of layers of there's no way he should get away with this. But when Joe McCarthy was doing them, wasn't the U.S. more involved? Weren't people? I mean, you talk about the the hearings towards his final days and getting such a high percentage of people glued to their TV set watching congressional hearings. Oh, my goodness. Today, I feel like people are, let's say, a large number of people are truly ignorant of how our government works and they can't be bothered with it. Back in that day, you know, just following World War II, where patriotism is running strong, where civic engagement is very important, weren't people much more involved in those days than they are now? So people were, I think, the same way they are today in so many ways. People were, on the one hand, incredibly patriotic during World War II and after World War II. They had just fought a war defending American values, and they had watched so many of their young sons and daughters go off and fight overseas that made people value freedom and value their democracy, and yet they were tired of war, and they were tired of being called on for that kind of service, and they wanted basically their government to take care of things and get on with their lives. And I think that people at any moment in this country are trusting and are willing to accept a kind of leadership even when it turns into a demagogic kind of leadership. We've had a strong strain of demagoguery and of bullies that preceded Joe McCarthy and that followed him up until today, we have been willing, amazingly, to cede power to them until they went too far and we took power away from them. And I think I spend a lot of time in this book trying to understand not just how Joe McCarthy tried to do what he had to do, wanted to do, that kind of opportunism is not unusual. I tried to understand how we as a country enabled him to do what he did, how people who financially underwrote him enabled him, how President Eisenhower, who was the strongest politician and the most popular politician that we had in America since Franklin Roosevelt, how he for two years let McCarthy get away with all the things that McCarthy got away with, how his fellow U.S. senators for years let him abuse his authority in the Senate when they knew he was doing that. It wasn't just Democrats who understood it. It was his fellow Republicans. And when they tried to speak out, he silenced them. It was, in the end, the American people who enabled him and who have to be held to account the same way they are today. 
We are as attuned, we're arguably more educated as a country today than we were in the 1950s, and we have not given up on patriotism, but we look for and at times accept simplistic answers that demagogues offer. They're brilliant at tapping into our psyche, they're brilliant at understanding our anxieties, and they're brilliant at giving us simplistic answers that we ought to know better than to accept. And what I saw with these new papers was that Joe McCarthy, in fact, was telling the truth about a number of important things in his life and in his record that we've assumed he was lying about. He was, in fact, the hero that he said he was in World War II, for instance, and the media had dismissed that, and it thought that he got his medals for reasons of politics. It is being able to go in and trying to say objectively, what did this guy tell us that was right and what did this guy tell us that was wrong, that when you get to all of his lies, you say it was because of his lies that we didn't believe him when he was telling the truth, and it was because of his lies that he was, in fact, the villain that history has painted him as, but it just isn't all that way. And there were other villains in the story. And when you look at a story like Joe McCarthy, it is very tough to come out and decide who the heroes were. Many biographers have painted Dwight Eisenhower as a hero for bringing down Joe McCarthy just around the time of the Army McCarthy hearings. And I paint Dwight Eisenhower in my book as a very Johnny-come-lately hero, that unlike what his brother Milton told him to do, which was to go after McCarthy in the early days when McCarthy was just beginning to amass his power, Eisenhower waited until McCarthy essentially did himself in by taking on the army. And during the nearly two years that he waited, there were lots of people who suffered very badly, all of McCarthy's targets, who would have loved for Eisenhower to do what his brother Milton told him to do, which is sacrifice a bit of your popularity and take on this guy that you know is a demagogue, and Eisenhower didn't do that. And time after time, we see people who have been painted as heroes look less good when you really look at their role. And another one of those people was the famous and iconic journalist Edward R. Murrow, who gets credit in the movies and in the Hollywood version of the story as the guy who took on and slayed Joe McCarthy. But Murrow himself was honest enough to say that he was very late to the game, like Dwight Eisenhower. We're going to learn more of this important information about Demagogue, a book by Larry Ty, which has tremendous reverberations for what we should know and what we should have learned to prevent today's situation from coming around in just a moment. But first, I've got to remind you, you're listening to Spirit in Action, the website, I'll say it together, Northern Spirit Radio. Dot .org with all of our programs of 15 years there. And so when you want to track down Larry Ty and you don't know that Ty is spelled T Y E, come via nordenspiritradio.org. You'll get there. There's a place for comments. We love them. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. And even more than supporting Norden Spirit Radio, I tremendously urge you to support your local media. We're going to talk a little bit more about media in just a moment, but local community radio stations, kind of places that carry this program, some 40 plus of them nationwide, they are so absolutely vital to having thriving truth get out there into the world. And so please, with your hands, with your wallet, 
please support your local community radio stations and other local media. Alternative media is absolutely vital. And I think that Larry Ty serves that function by his books, both about Satchel Paige and about Superman and about Bobby Kennedy, and in this case, in writing about Joe McCarthy. Let's talk a little bit about the media and the press. You already talked about Edward R. Murrow, Eric Severoid, you mentioned in the book, and other important figures in the media. One of the things that's going on today, as soon as someone disagrees with the president, he yells out fake news, and a lot of people then tune it out which I think is very unfortunate because I don't think they're using the proper filters to determine what news we have. What was it like back in the day of Joe McCarthy and his rise as a demagogue? The technology of media was very different back then. We didn't have the Internet. The most powerful outlets back then were newspapers, and they were the ones who controlled essentially what happened in terms of press coverage. They were the ones who dictated what radio and TV did. But the technology didn't matter. It was the same forces at work as today. Donald Trump has learned tremendously from the Joe McCarthy playbook. McCarthy was brilliant in two things the same way Trump is. On the one hand, understanding how the press works and when he can, charming the press to follow him. Donald Trump has an extraordinary followership on Fox News, and he has a whole part of the American media that goes along with his agenda and his view of what real and fake is. And Joe McCarthy did as well. He was brilliant at charming the press when he could convince them of the righteousness of his cause. He was brilliant at attacking them when the press disagreed with him. And most importantly, he was brilliant at every day staying ahead of the fact-finding journalists. So he might lob a bomb today accusing 205 people in the U.S. State Department of being subversives, of having communist sympathies, and of being there undermining American policy. And when reporters were out there checking his number, tomorrow he'd be lobbing a new charge and saying, no, the real number is 57. Here are the real people who are the subversives. And every one of his charges that was disproven, he'd be out there making a new charge. He knew never to yield ground, he knew if one bombshell exploded and showed itself to be off target, you'd just lob a new one the next day. And understanding the media was critical to being able to exploit the media and turn the media into your ally, even when they thought that they were your enemy and they were keeping you honest. And there were few enough reporters who really stayed on top of what he was doing, who were looking at the patterns and who helped the American people see through him in the early days that I think we should lionize the few who did, and they were people like the often unpopular but really widely read columnist Drew Pearson. And if there was a single hero in those early days of taking on Joe McCarthy, it wasn't Edward R. Murrow. It was America's best-read columnist Drew Pearson. It's important to note, however, that a number of people, and amongst them, not only the people charged as being communists, but anyone who opposed Joe McCarthy's rise or his agenda, he went after them so vindictively that oftentimes they lost their job, they would get unseated from government. To talk about a few of those cases, I, one of them is an election where Joe McCarthy threw his weight at that time to one side, and I think he cowed all of the other politicians because of that. 
He did. So let's take one case. And the case is the senator from Maryland named Millard Tidings. Senator Tidings stood up to Joe McCarthy in the early days after McCarthy launched his crusade against communism. In the Senate following that, the Democratic senators who were in charge deputized Senator Tidings from Maryland to go after McCarthy. And he does that, and he comes out with a scathing report. And McCarthy never forgets that. And when Senator Tidings is up for election in the next election cycle, Joe McCarthy goes in with both barrels and attacks Senator Tidings. He does it in ways that were partly above board. He does it with inventions. He does it by exceeding the guidelines for how much you could spend on a campaign. He does it by not letting his fingerprints be shown in terms of being the one who's orchestrating the campaign against the powerful Senator Tidings. And he did it partly because he hated Millard Tidings and resented him for having stood up to McCarthy and calling him the fraud that McCarthy was. But he also did it for another really important reason. As you suggested, he understood if you use your battering ram to take down a senator as powerful as Senator Tidings in Maryland was, then that sends a message to all the rest of the U.S. senators who might be tempted to take on Joe McCarthy that you do it at your own risk. And we've seen that happen in the U.S. I specifically think of what happened with the Tea Party back in 2010. I think a whole lot of very principled and idealistic Republicans all of a sudden backtracked and were willing to give up their morals because they didn't want to give up their post in government. Do you see that same parallel? I do see the parallel. And I think that that Donald Trump and the Tea Party movement showed how effective they could be in going in as a political ally or enemy and that you took them on at your own risk. There are Republicans all around the country who might have been tempted to stand up to Donald Trump, but who saw the way he comes crashing down on you when you do that. And that was the message that Joe McCarthy had shown, that you give your enemy no chance at standing up and no chance at survival and you take them on with full force and ferocity. That was what Joe McCarthy's protege, a young, smart, arrogant lawyer named Roy Cohn, understood from his mentor Joe McCarthy that was the way you took on political enemies. And that was, nearly half a century later, what Roy Cohn told his young mentee, a guy named Donald Trump, on how things were done. So we have a flesh and blood through line from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump via Roy Cohn. One of the things I find very interesting that's the backdrop to this is the transition from the New Deal. That's when Social Security and other really important programs were born. So we've had a massive long period. I mean, FDR was elected four times. And in this period, we've had instantiated in the government what, from my point of view, looks like a wonderful liberal renaissance going on there. We finished World War II, and all of a sudden, the big cry becomes anti-communism. But why did people so easily give up their fear of a totalitarian dictator like Hitler? Why did they give up on that fear and turn over to this more nebulous and hard-to-pin-down communist fear? 
because there was a real threat of communism then. The Soviet Union was very powerful. The Soviet Union seemed to be antithetical to all of American values. And McCarthy was brilliant at taking a real and legitimate fear during the Cold War and turning it into a fear that it wasn't just something going on overseas that we ought to be concerned about, but it was something going on in terms of subversion in our own government. And as you say, McCarthy didn't start any of this. It was the House Un-American Activities Committee that several years before had launched this crusade against communists in our own ranks. And Joe McCarthy just did a better job than anybody at recognizing Americans' legitimate fears and turning them into exaggerated fears. People I know today who are credible anti-communists, whether or not I share their sense of the threat that communism posed to America, they, the smartest and most trustworthy and most fact-based of those anti-communists, say that the greatest disservice ever done to their movement was not the people who stood up to Joe McCarthy. It was Joe McCarthy by undermining the movement from within, by essentially suggesting that anti-communists were liars and embellishers just because Joe McCarthy was a liar and an embellisher. Certainly. I think it might be valuable in terms of looking at today and the lessons that we should have learned from Joe McCarthy that we talk about what the parallels are in terms of the rise of Donald Trump. So Joe McCarthy has communism as his linchpin argument and a fair one that there really is a danger from. What would you see as parallel in the universe of Donald Trump and his rise? So I think Donald Trump has, in the same way Joe McCarthy sort of made everything into a simplistic argument that communism was responsible for all of our faults and that if we just rooted out the communists in the State Department, we'd solve our problems. Donald Trump has used immigrants as his scapegoat, and his notion is, geez, if we just built that wall, that we would protect ourselves against all the things that are ailing us. And I think that they both suggest that if you repeat that kind of a mantra often enough, not just that you will begin to believe it, and I don't know whether Donald Trump believed it in the early days, but he probably does believe it today. Joe McCarthy picked up communism as an issue at a time when he was being an opportunist, and I'm not convinced that he believed much of what he was saying, but by the end, he had become a true believer and believed in the simplistic notion that you can boil everything down to a single enemy, a vulnerable enemy that you can point the finger at, and that if only we did the simple solution that he proposes, we'd be okay. I felt like in reading all these things about Joe McCarthy, I only mentioned Donald Trump in my preface of the book and in the epilogue of the book. But I feel like in every page of the book, you can watch the playbook being developed for Joe McCarthy, that everybody from George Wallace to David Duke to Donald Trump, all these demagogues who followed, have borrowed the McCarthy playbook. McCarthy is their archetypal figure. I thought that that case becomes apparent. I'd love to read you, if I could, two quotes that I think get at that issue that you were getting at, though, in terms of the parallels. 62 years ago, the famous pioneer of polling, George Gallup, said about Joe McCarthy and his followers, and I quote, even if it were known that McCarthy had killed five innocent children, they probably would still go along with him. That was 62 years ago. In 2016, Donald Trump boasted to his supporters 
I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. And I think, to me, the chilling parallel between those chilling statements is the notion that people so believe in these figures, in what they're saying, the embellishments that they're telling us, that they will go to the wall for them and do whatever they tell them to do and believe whatever they tell them. There is another parallel that I found absolutely gripping. I don't think you specifically mentioned it in the book. And folks, by the way, we are talking to Larry Tai, author of Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. In the book, you deal with in depth his attack on the State Department. He alleges that there's complete communist infiltration throughout the State Department. One of the issues that Donald Trump has used frequently, and a phrase that he's made ubiquitous, is the deep state and deep state and the State Department. I don't think there's any accident there that he grabs that as his issue. Yes. So I think that parallel is there and it's stark and it's chilling. It's essentially the notion that if you go after not just the deep state and it's not just the government, it's this whole notion of everything that's represented by their notion of what the government is. They see some elitist establishment. They see East Coasters. They see Harvard intellectuals. They see disproportionately Jews. They see this group, which is in their mind the other and the enemy of the so-called real Americans, and whether those real Americans are Joe McCarthy's Americans or Donald Trump's Americans, there is this notion that somebody is out there exploiting us, that somebody's out there to blame for all of our problems, and that it's as simple as let's go after them. And the truth is that I don't think that either Joe McCarthy or Donald Trump have stood up for the kinds of things that an average American would want. They just stand up for these boogeymen of deep state or elitists. I think almost everyone looking back on Joe McCarthy associates him with being anti-communist, and that was his big talking point. But you point out a number of times that his speech and perhaps his actions were both anti-Semitic and perhaps anti-homosexual. How big a role did those play in his agenda from your point of view, especially considering that Roy Cohn, who you already mentioned, his number one staffer, turns out to be homosexual? Yes. So Roy Cohn, I think that you're right that McCarthy was clearly anti-gay. And I think that he did a number of things that suggest that he was anti-Semitic, or at least he behaved like an anti-Semite. And it's ironic that his number one staffer was both a Jew and was gay. I think that while McCarthy never conceded that Roy Cohn was gay, and Cohn was not openly gay then, Cohn was never openly gay, but was Clearly, at the end of his life, nobody doubted that he was gay. I think that McCarthy liked Roy Cohn in the first instance, in part because it gave him protection against being anti-Semitic. He could just say, geez, how could I be an anti-Semite? I hired Roy Cohn and his buddy G. David Shine as two of my staffers, two overtly Jewish guys, and if I were anti-Semitic, I wouldn't do that. And, and I think that the fact is that most of McCarthy's targets, they were disproportionately Jewish and they included lots of gays. I think that was, again, sort of part of his knee-jerk right-wing reaction. He bought into whether or not he was an anti-Semite himself. There is no question that he furthered the cause of a lot of very blatant anti-Semites in going after people like Anna Rosenberg, 
who was nominated to help the military during the Korean War raise the troops that we needed. And she was appointed by General Marshall, and she was an extraordinary patriot. And every anti-Semitic group in America came out and opposed her, and Joe McCarthy was at the head of the band. When it came to the perpetrators of one of the bloodiest episodes that the Nazis committed during World War II, the so-called Malmedy Massacre during the Battle of the Bulge, it was Joe McCarthy who was out there defending the perpetrators and saying we were treating them unfairly. And it was a cause that was ripe for anti-Semites. And he never hid his gay bashing. And that was almost as much of a preoccupation for him in his early days as his anti-communism. Well, speaking of religion, because I am Quaker, anytime I see reference to Quaker, right away my attention perks up. Very early in the book, you're talking about a company from Appleton. It's called the Quaker Dairy Company, and his actions with respect to that. That was the first reference. But the second one, which is much more significant, and I hadn't known this, Evidently, Drew Pearson was Quaker himself. You refer to him as mustachioed Quaker from Pennsylvania. Is that true And that you label him as the true hero of this saga in that he stayed with his principles? So was he actually Quaker? I didn't know that. So he was Quaker, and when Joe McCarthy at a posh dinner that the two of them were invited to for celebrating Pearson's birthday... Joe McCarthy physically got rough with him and pushed him around and actually caused him some ongoing physical pain. One of the reasons why Pearson said that he never stood up and pushed back was because of his peace-loving Quaker ways. And I think that Pearson's Quaker roots and Quaker disposition made everything that Joe McCarthy was doing a special affront to his religion as well as to his sense of the way politics and democracy ought to work. And I think that just gave him more incentive, even when it was a very unpopular thing to do, to take on Joe McCarthy. In case anyone thinks that I like to pick and choose my the media that's favorable to Quakers, I probably do. But on the other hand, there's the evil Quaker of the ages, who's also included in the story, Richard Nixon, who was one of the good buddies and actually act as a go-between in negotiations at times, for instance, with Joe McCarthy, and that is Richard Nixon. He's the evil Quaker, although you quote him in the book as saying something about you know doing some good Quaker prayer or something. I forget what the exact reference was. Yes. So Richard Nixon was a key figure in this whole story. And Nixon, on the one hand, was the go-between between Eisenhower, who despised McCarthy, and McCarthy, who despised Eisenhower. And Nixon was somebody who I think sided with whichever of those two served his own purpose really well. I have to say, though, that one of the few people in that era of American history who could make Richard Nixon look good was Joe McCarthy. <laughs> that's a pretty sad and scary to realize that that's what it takes to raise you up. People may think I'm toadying a little bit, Larry, when I say that Larry Ty brings together such a cohesive, thorough, deep, honest, and balanced account of things. But I want to offer in support of praise for you and for your book, Daniel Ellsberg, who I consider one of the great heroes of American history because of Pentagon Papers, he's quoted in praise for your book, saying that, amongst other things, it has never been more timely or urgent to have Larry Ty's definitive answers to the question, how did Joe McCarthy get power in America 
and how was he brought down? If you've got Daniel Ellsberg on your side, that pretty much assures a win, doesn't it? I hope so, and I think that um, Daniel Ellsberg always deserves the last word. But I think that the Ellsberg is, in addition to having been a hero during the Watergate era, is a smart judge of American history. And I think Ellsberg understood and lived through the threat of McCarthyism and is very afraid that he's seeing those same things in that same playbook at work today. And so Ellsberg is, I think, looking to try to understand the history of McCarthy and how he can inform our understanding of our world today. Daniel Ellsberg finishes his quote with saying about how important to answer the questions, how Joe McCarthy got to power in America. We've been talking about that a fair amount. And then the question is, how was he brought down? And that's really important, too. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the hearings when all of a sudden Joe McCarthy decides that he's going to go after the Army. So Joe McCarthy thought that it was important to raise this specter of communists anywhere he saw them in the government. And he decided to take on one towering institution too many, and that was the all-powerful U.S. Army. And he said that there were subversives at a base in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. He said that they were threatening the security of America's military establishment. And he held hearings pointing the finger at lots of people there. Most of the people that he was pointing the finger at were very low-level Most of them may have had some flirtation with communism at a very early point in their college careers or may have had a relative who seemed a little too left of center for Joe McCarthy. He found almost no real subversives. He managed to outrage senior levels of the U.S. military command, most importantly the commander-in-chief Dwight Eisenhower, to whom the Army was a sacred institution, That was exactly what Eisenhower and McCarthy's other enemies had been waiting for, for him to take on an institution unlike the State Department, which didn't have a whole lot of defenders, but like the U.S. Army, which was the most democratic of institutions with a small d and that everybody could relate to. He took them on. His evidence was shoddy. He was confronted during these hearings that the Senate held, the so-called famous Army-McCarthy hearings, And he began that year of those hearings, the year of 1954, with a popularity rating of a full 50% of America being behind him. The only one who was more popular was Dwight Eisenhower. And McCarthy, by the end of the hearings, was watching his popularity tumble, was watching his support in the Senate tumble. By the end of 1954, the Senate had taken the very rare step of condemning a fellow member, and of essentially taking away all of his real power. And from the end of 1954 to his death in 1957, Joe McCarthy was a destroyed figure, destroyed politically, destroyed personally, drinking himself to death, and it was just a downward spiral from his heights at the beginning of 54 to his death in 57. So what I think you're saying, really, by that description, is the one who brought him down, brought Joe McCarthy down, was Joe McCarthy, because he just went too far. I have to confess that my impression was going to be that Donald Trump would get into office, that within a year the Republicans would impeach him. With the action that the Senate eventually took against Joe McCarthy, 22 out of the 44 Republicans 
voted for his. It, what they didn't call it censure. What did they call it? They called it a condemnation. Condemnation instead of censure. Half of them voted against him. I really thought that within a year, year and a half at the most, that Donald Trump would be impeached and therefore his vice president could rise to the throne and he could play nice with other people. It's actually shocked me, number one, that it didn't happen in this case, but number two, that it did happen with Joe McCarthy. How is it that half of the Republicans had the chutzpah to stand up and say, you're not acceptable? There wasn't really new evidence from their point of view. It was the Republicans in the Senate having the courage to stand up to Joe McCarthy at the point that Joe McCarthy had lost the support of the American people. Until that point, it was a very rare Republican. It was Republicans like Margaret Chase Smith of Maine who stood up to Joe McCarthy, and it was at her political peril. McCarthy went after her, and most Republicans weren't going to defend her then. So it was only at the end, rather than being a sign of courage, in terms of those Republicans being willing in the end to vote for what amounted to censure and was called condemnation, it was their having lacked the courage and waiting until he was so down and out that they knew that they couldn't continue to support him. He had done so many outrageous things. And I think we will see what happens between now and November. But I think if Donald Trump started to watch his poll numbers truly plummet and started to lose the base of support that he had in America, I think you would see lots of Senate Republicans suddenly having the courage to distance themselves as they try to protect their own electability and their own political base. Sadly, there are not too many profiles in courage in American politics in the 1950s and in American politics today. And sadly, one of the people who coined that term, profile in courage, John F. Kennedy, showed himself not to have a whole lot of courage when it took to standing up against Joe McCarthy himself. In that vote, that condemnation vote, John Kennedy basically was absent. He was absent supposedly because he was having back surgery and he wasn't well enough to be there, but he could have paired his vote with somebody else. He could have stood up and said, this is how I would have voted. And instead, he understood that Massachusetts had an enormous, important Catholic voting bloc that seemed to still support Joe McCarthy and John Kennedy took the easy way out and never stood up and condemned Joe McCarthy along with the rest of the Senate. You know, Larry, the thing that I find is scary, you mentioned the drop from 50% favorable for Joe McCarthy, that dropped down to after the hearings, after he's been condemned, after all kinds of evidence, people have seen him being the tyrant and the confused and the and the the venal and, and more serious problems that he had. They've seen all of that, and it only drops to 33%. And I feel like we've seen that today, too. My question is, how can 33% of the people in the U.S. have supported this guy who was really such a miscreant at best? How can they still do that? And I, I guess the truth is that there's always that portion of the United States, which I just would have figured it would have dropped, given the way that history has filtered it to us, you know, 15%, right? Yes. I think you answered it really well, which is there is always a percent. To me, 33% says you're left with just the true believers. And it's scary that 33%, given all that had come out about Joe McCarthy, could still have supported him. But whether they were just avid anti-communists and they saw him as helping the cause, 
whether it was that they shared his xenophobia and his demagogic ideals. I don't know just why they did it, but the truth is that I think that had he lived long enough and stood for re-election in 1958, that he would have been beaten at the polls in Wisconsin, that even there, his base of support, there wasn't enough support. The idea that his seat in the Senate was taken and taken for a long time by the liberal Democrat, William Proxmire, suggests that Wisconsin voters had really changed their mind on those critical issues, as well as on Joe McCarthy personally. I'm wondering, I don't think you actually offer this in the book, Larry, and I just finished reading it this morning, what the important lessons are, what we should have learned from our experience with Joe McCarthy, which we should have brought forward in terms of applying to the demagogues that have happened between then and now. Do you have any big lessons that we should have drawn on in making our political decisions? Yes. So I think the biggest lesson is a very simple lesson, that democracy and fair play and free speech and giving everybody their true rights, all of those things that we learn in our high school civics classes really do matter. And no matter how much anybody comes along at a given moment and tells us there's a crisis why we ought to put aside those very basic notions of justice, nothing ever justifies putting those aside. Those are the strength of America. We generally, whether we're going right or going left, We recognize certain principles of decency and of fair play. Those are what we have to rely on. And I'm convinced in the end that we'll come back to those principles today the same way we did in the era of Joe McCarthy. And it looked like Joe McCarthy was going to have the last laugh for so much of the first half of the 1950s in America, the same way it does like Donald Trump will today. But in the end, I have faith in America and in our democratic history. You know, one of the lessons that I would have hoped we would have learned would be that the ends do not justify the means. I think there were a a great number of supporters of Joe McCarthy who were against something that was truly threatening to life in America, and that was communism. So their ends, trying to fight communism, were valid. But the means that was used, which included an incredible amount of manipulation and lying, they accepted that. And I, I feel like that we have that same situation, that people haven't learned that lesson, that the actions you take cannot violate your rock-hard principles, no matter how good your means are. So I agree with that, but I also agree that, to me, one of the other bedrocks is the basic principles of what journalism stands for, which is that there really is a truth out there, and that the truth is not just what somebody says and repeats often enough to convince us that that's the truth. And so whether that is the truth about whether the people that Joe McCarthy was pointing the finger at were really communists, were really subversives, really threatened our government, and they weren't, and he got it wrong, or the truth about whether immigrants are really the threat and building the wall will make us safe again, that just they're not the threat and that isn't the truth. And I think that in the end, you've got to have faith not just in democracy and injustice, but that truth will prevail. It did in the end with Joe McCarthy, and I think it will again today. Before I let you go, Larry Ty, there is one more thing I would just like to recognize and have a few words about. 
because I look for the ways that my guests for Spirit in Action have been doing good in the world. And I think one not sufficiently lauded effort that you've been part of since 2001 is the Health Coverage Fellowship. Would you tell our listeners for Spirit in Action what that is and how it's helping making the world a better place? Sure. So for much of my time as a journalist, and that was 20 years, I was a health reporter. When I left journalism to write books full-time, we launched a program 19 years ago that every year takes a dozen of the best health journalists from around the country, brings them to Boston for nine days and nights, brings in a 100 speakers, takes them out on a dozen field trips, all with a very simple purpose, which is to make them a little bit better in covering issues like mental health, like health insurance for everybody, and in covering issues like pandemics. It takes these journalists who are very smart to begin with, lets them learn from one another. They come from red states and blue states, from national outlets and from smaller local outlets, from public radio across the country. And in the end, we see, I think, the importance of health reporters getting it right when we're in a situation like we are today in this era of the virus. And we have been running every week for the 250 journalists who have been through this program, we've been running special briefings for them every week via Zoom on issues of COVID coverage. We bring in people like governors and health ministers from around the world. A week ago, we had in Watergate journalist Bob Woodward to remind people about the investigative journalism that's critical to really telling the underlying stories of how COVID was allowed to happen The bottom line is our health matters and getting the right information about our health and about a virus like this matters today more than ever. Well, I thank you for doing that work, the Health Coverage Fellowship. We will have linked on NordenSpiritRadio.org. We'll have a link, of course, to Larry Tai and, again, his spelling of his name, L-A-R-R-Y. T-Y-E, LarryTie.com. And Larry, I just want to say that anyone who reads one of your books cannot help but come away not only wiser, but amused. You tell the story so well, so grippingly. It's not a novel. There's no historical fiction involved, but it still reads like a gripping story. And for you to do that with history and to bring in so many wonderful nuances of personalities, people, and issues... I think is a great service to this country. Thank you for doing it, and thank you for doing it so captivatingly. So thanks for having me on and talking about it, and I look forward to talking about my next book. Are you going to give us the foreshadowing? I will. I'll give you the title of the next book, which I'm deeply involved with right now. It's a book called The Jazzmen, J-A-Z-Z-N-E-N, and the subtitle is How Duke Ellington, Satchmo Armstrong, and Count Basie Transformed America. I'm going to look forward to it. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Again, folks, the links to Larry Tai and the invaluable bonus excerpts are on northernspiritradio.org. Check them out, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.
口，阿妈儿。